Welcome to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help you, the technology professional, accelerate your career progression, increase your job satisfaction, and be more effective in your existing role. We want to bring listeners like you the career advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm John White at VJourneyman on Twitter, sharing co-host duties with Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore. We're two former IT operations guys who have moved on to pre-sales roles with technology vendors. We have our opinions, but we also like to highlight the journeys of others and see what we can learn from them. We'd also like to ask for your feedback to make this a conversation, not a one-way broadcast. Email us at nerdjourneypodcast at gmail.com or DM us at nerdjourney on Twitter. So come join us on our nerd journey. Let's take a trip. Thanks for being with us for episode 264. Let's start this week with a question. Would you recommend the Nerd Journey podcast to a friend? If that answer is not a resounding yes, please stop what you're doing, pause this episode, and send an email to nerdjourneypodcast at gmail.com with suggestions on how we can provide more value to listeners like you. This week is a continuation of our discussion with repeat guest Brad Christian. He's currently a solutions specialist at Computer Center. If you missed part one of our discussion with Brad in episode 263, we heard about his reasons for pursuing work at a startup and how his job changed pretty quick into that experience to be a cloud economist. We also talked about the role of a manager as both a player and a coach. And then Brad shared some details about his certification plan and how it keeps him structured. This week in part two of our discussion with Brad, he's going to give us a little bit more detail on how he arrived at selecting the specific technologies on which he's going to get certified. That's a tough question, actually. How do you decide where to place your time and effort to get certified? It's more than just technology you think is cool. You'll also hear the reasons Brad chose to go back to working for a VAR or a value-added reseller. And though it's a little bit out of order in our discussion, this is another story of layoff. Brad's going to share the story of how it happened, what he did as a result, and some tips on how we can support others in the community and ourselves. Here we go with part two of our discussion with Brad Christian. Let me ask you about the reason that you made the decisions to look at the technologies that you made. I think even the last time that we talked to you, we kind of talked about these kinds of uh, waves of technologies. And we talked about, you know, I think some of the past guests that we've talked to who talked about making a bet on technology, right? So if you made a bet on on VMware 15 years ago and virtualization technology, you probably did pretty well over the last 15 years. It sounds like you're making a bet on, first of all, open source, but maybe Red Hat, and then specifically Kubernetes for app modernization. And and so I think there's this kind of straddle that we need to make, right? We need to 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 do that early enough to have an advantage over other people, but we need to do it late enough in order to be certain enough that it has staying power, right? If you if you made a, a strong bet on OpenStack, you know, ten years ago, then you might be struggling a little bit right now. 
in, yeah, sorry. No, uh, I'm not trying to uh, ruffle any feathers there. But uh, so, so what was that process uh, for you? Yeah. So right now it's so weird. You know, the largest security company in the world right now, you know, is Microsoft. This is just a crazy, crazy time. And I, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for anybody to shake the magic eight ball and see the future. But I, I do know one thing when, when I haven't known what to do, right? I did bet big on VMware, but you know, there's other times I'm, I've, I did bet big on OpenStack. I went through a lot of <laughs> training for that. It's a waste of time. I wish I had those brain cells back. One thing's clear, doubling down on fundamentals is not going to hurt you. I think that there's going to be more and more of a demand to bring cloud native tools back on prem. I that's my bet. I think that's going to happen. I think with with the with the rise of AI, I think um you don't need to be putting your intellectual property on a cloud. I think you're I think it's malfeasance as a leader if you do it. So a lot of that data is going to have to come back on prem uh for security reasons. I think security is going to become more and more of a big deal. I think that GDPR is coming to the US. I think that there will be more breaches. And I've never been a fan of centralization as it is. I've always been a fan of distributed systems, that kind of thing. I, so my bet is that going back, there'll be workloads that make sense in cloud, but a lot of this AI stuff will come back on-prem and it's got to have you know 400 gig networking, for instance. There's stuff like that that are requirements that NVIDIA is telling us we have to have that is just bonkers. So I think preparing for that is a good move. And I think newer storage companies like Weka, I think we're going to be hearing more and more stories about companies. I think um, having FinOps baked into that whole process is an important bet. There's going to be more workload variability. Um, I think Edge is a huge space. There'll be more and more of that. If I was helping someone younger, you know, plan out what they need to get certified, go learn networking first and foremost. It's going to be about stuff moving around. You know, storage isn't that hard to pick up. You know, and there's a lot of awesome tech around that. Just being out there and and learning about these different workloads and and how to shift them around, I think, is going to be key over the next couple of years. But as far as like other individual companies, boy, I don't know. I, I do know that you have a lot of people that if they're going to take cloud native workloads and bring them back on prem, there's a lot of missing tools and processes um, when it comes to Kubernetes. A lot of kind of religious battles going on. There's a lot, there's volatility, you know, with other companies. So there's a lot of FUD going on. I don't know. We'll just have to see. But I, I think Red Hat's not going anywhere. I will say one thing. I went to a, a Red Hat user group meeting here in Dallas, right down the street from my house. I was the youngest person there. I was the youngest person there. I, uh, there, I think there's a lot of folks, younger folks, who would, it would be wise to start going and doing that kind of thing. You know, VMUG has gotten much smaller. You know, it didn't really bounce back from COVID like we had hoped it would. But I think going to meetups and that kind of stuff is going to get more and more important. If you're listening to this and you're somebody who's a little bit younger and you've only done work on AWS or something like that, go learn Red Hat. Go, go learn the on-prem stuff. Learn the hard things. You've, if you've been taught to do everything the easy way at scale, Learn why we had to build all that stuff in the first place. I think that it's interesting. Making a, a bet on Red Hat is not necessarily what I would think of as making a bet on a vendor because you are learning and relying on kind of foundational Linux stuff, right? And certainly, 
you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, hey, you know, one Linux distribution, you know them all because there's, you know, the different flavors have differences. Like, you know, but that's like saying that, you know, oh, like I'm super comfortable driving this Ford all the time. If I climb into a Chevy, like it's not, you know, it's not like you don't know how to drive a car, right? You might not necessarily be able to break the engine down and rebuild it, you know, and it might take a little bit more study to do that. But yeah, and, and it's not like that's not used in the cloud. Like the, it's certainly Linux is, you know, used a lot in the cloud and is, you know, the kind of foundation of a lot of stuff that's in the cloud, as well as, you know, something that you need to, sometimes you need to dive into the guts of. So it's, it's a very interesting and like, I wouldn't say that's a bleeding edge choice, right? No, no, not at all. That's like totally safe. But at the same time, it's not something that like, there's like a glut of people like who have those tools in their toolbox, especially if you're going to a Red Hat meetup and there's everybody's older than you. Like that's kind of a, that's kind of a good sign. All those people are going to retire before you are, statistically. (laughs) Well, so many mission-critical business systems run on Linux platforms. So many of these storage vendors and others, probably some of the ones you spoke about, Brad, have a Linux backend of some sort because they want it to be lighter weight than a Windows front-end, for example. I like the back-to-basics approach. I, I really do because along with the massive respect for NeoVim, I always thought it was super intimidating and amazing when someone could play a command line like a guitar. There's some elegance there that is amazing to me when I'd see somebody set up a Cisco ASA completely from the from the command line, you know. I do like that idea. Back to basics, but branching out into an area where maybe you haven't gone super deep before. So like within the basic fundamentals bubble, but still as you said, getting more broad, deepening your breadth. I like it. So Linux is kind of the the basis for Kubernetes. Is I think maybe we haven't said that explicitly, but that's that's kind of what you're talking about with like either cloud native or or app modernization, whichever you want to call it. You know, obviously from there, you know, Kubernetes is you know usually the basis for a lot of things like you know, the aforementioned AI, right, with, say, Kubeflow or something like that. So, yeah, I can definitely see making a technology choice like that, like, you've kind of taken into account where you think the world is going. It's like a pretty safe bet that, you know, there's a bunch of momentum behind those choices that have already been made by really large organizations. But at the same time, there's a strong, like, lack of people that have you know, well, first of all, nobody has 10 years of experience in that, right? So, (laughs) you know, you're talking about stuff that was invented less than 10 years ago. So, you know, everybody looks like an early adopter at this point. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I'm I'm behind this choice. I I don't even know if Kubernetes is the, the one to make the big bet on. I can't believe somebody hasn't come along with something easier that supersedes basic virtualization and Kubernetes. You know, what, what's the peanut butter and jelly sandwich of those two things? I actually talked to a startup um, who I'll leave nameless, but they, they have a ton of uh, federal government contracts. They build hardware 
it's kind of like Cisco UCS, that, that same architecture where you have a top rack switch with a compute underneath it. But this actually has both Kubernetes and, and virtual KVM baked in. And you just hit that no developer can actually go into the internals of the hardware. You go to an API gateway and that's it. I actually talked to those folks for six weeks because I was fascinated by that. Ultimately, though, it wasn't, it wasn't broad enough for me. And that's, that's why, to me, a VAR made more sense. And I was a little put off by startups. <laughs> so was my wife, for that matter. But there's going to be something after that, but it will be, run, it will be built on Linux. Absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see how you're betting on like a major distribution too. I mean, the, you know, my, I'm sad to say the last Slackware uh, meetup I went to like was in my imagination, right? So um, not many people there. It's just <laughs> so I want to ask this, Brad, with your experience and what you learned in marketing, bad taste in your mouth from the startup experience, what goes through your mind as to selecting what you should pursue as a next job move? How do you decide that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just w- tell you what happened to me. You know, so I, I worked at this startup for a year and three or four months before my team got let go. And nearly a year of that was as a cloud economist. I mean, not something I'd been prepared to do. So I didn't even really get the master's class in marketing that I had wanted. You know, I was heavily involved with it for a while, but I spent way more time learning finances. Anyway, so what happened happened and and ended up uh, leaving. And I was looking around, you know, at my next choice. My wife took me aside and, and said, well, where were you happiest? And I was like, well, I mean, you know, VMware was awesome, but you know, obviously that's, that's not going to be the same. But she's like, you loved working at Avar. And at first when I heard that, I, when I thought of VAR, I, it felt like a step back because I worked so long. You know, I worked at Avar for, uh, here in Texas, Sigma Solutions, which got bought by another VAR called Pivot. And I was delivery, so I would go around standing up VMware environments. And I really worked hard to get my VCBX so that I could move to what I thought was the next step, right? Which is going to work for a big OEM. And, and all that worked and all that hard work paid off. And I, I got to, you know, a financial level, you know, that I was happy with. I, when I worked at VMware, you know, I got to write a book and I, you know, I just did all this stuff that to me, it seemed really important to climb the ladder. So what did I want to do after leaving that startup? I couldn't go back to VMware. Well, my wife said, well, why don't you, why don't you just talk to some of the, the VAR guys you're still friends with? I was like, you know, that's not a bad idea. So I actually, I'm still friends with a, a ton of folks who work at VARs. So I just started, you know, going and getting them to buy me steak uh, for lunch. That's, a, <laughs> that's my MO. I'm constantly after the next free steak. Anyway, so we, um, I, I started talking and, and there's so much disruption and so much change going on. Who's going to capitalize on all this disruption and change? The VARs are, you know, where are companies turning to for advice on designing solutions for what's going on? They're turning to VARs. So I, I started talking to a, a couple of different VARs here in, in the DFW Metroplex. When a, when a gentleman called me that I'd worked with before at the aforementioned Pivot, he's my current boss right now. Uh, he's like, well, have you thought about, you know, computer center? I was like, I've never heard of computer center. Who is that? Well, what happened was the company I worked for before, Pivot, uh, was bought by Fusion Storm. Fusion Storm was bought by Computer Center. I mean, they're just they're huge. They had been wanting to expand to the American market, so they had bought Fusion Storm. 
So they uh, they just had this great story about supply chain management and and capability management and international reach and scope that was just fascinating. And they had unobtainium levels of vendor certification. Uh, if you're not uh, familiar with the VAR world, if you want to sell OEM, like if you want to sell Dell or Cisco or any of the other uh, big vendors, you have to have a certain number of people certified on those products. And then you get levels of discount and, you know, it's usually, you know, like gold medals, you know, bronze, gold, silver, you know, so on and so forth. Levels of, of certification. Computer Center has the top in every category. And so that I was shocked by. But what really sold it for me was I, all the people that I'd worked with eight years before, nine years before, were still there. You know, Pivot had, had bought Process on the, you know, out of Atlanta and ACS. I start talking. I was like, well, what about all so-and-so? They're still here. That right there was what convinced me that this was the right company. You know, all the, all the great stories around international reach and, and all that, that, that was great. But finding out how many people had stayed with that organization through that many buyouts, and they're insanely successful, Computer Center is. So hearing all that, but hearing that people had stayed and, and be able to work with people I knew. So I walked in the door and it felt like I was coming home. It really did. I, just so many great people that I, you know, had spent time with and worked on big deals. It felt like I, I left my small town, went off to the big city, and now I'm back. But it, it's great working with all those same people again. I like the insight from your wife because sometimes we don't see those things when we're in the in search mode, as you were, and she was able to provide some clarity of observation. Now, I think you said just to make sure I heard it right. You were just looking. It wasn't you specifically that was laid off, right? No, I was laid off for oh, sure. Okay. Probably I should have insisted we finish the story real fast, but I got moved out of this team. And so this company had data architects, not pre-sales or SEs. Anyway, so uh, a couple of folks were on that team with me. One like got let go. And then a couple of months later, another one got let go. And then the whole team got uh, whacked. I was absolutely laid off. Got that meeting on your invite or on your calendar that shows up for tomorrow. And you can tell by, by the invite that you're about to get laid off, you know? So I was just, okay, thanks. Bye. (laughs) You know, I I wasn't too surprised. And frankly, I I had pretty much learned all I was going to learn from that company. I'll tell you there, I did learn a big lesson in leadership. Uh, The guy who is my manager there, I met him twice, literally in a zoom session with him twice in a year. Close to a year, yeah. Wow. Now, some of y'all who, yeah, who have had, you know, been micromanaged in the past, you're like, oh, that sounds like heaven. No, it's not. You have no idea where you're sitting with you. It is more stressful. I, I cannot think of a meaner thing to do to somebody than be their manager and not meet with them at least once a month, once a quarter, something. Yeah, that I really was left twisting the wind. So I, what I did was I just went to every meeting I could and I, I really busted my tail to try to make an impact. But if you're not tied into the, to the leadership organization, you're hosed. So I was not surprised and, kind of, and I was kind of relieved when it was time to go. Well, we did address layoffs a little bit earlier from the manager perspective. You know, we were talking about it and John mentioned he had been impacted. Now that you've yeah. been impacted, there are a lot of people in our industry in the past couple of years who have been impacted. So Having gone through that, how about some recommendations for people to pick themselves up and get back out there? First off, it's a blow to the ego, right? You can't let that beat you down. 
Americans have a, our job is defines who we are for better or for worse. The one great piece of advice I got from my leader at VMware, you're not going to get a gold watch. That just doesn't happen anymore. What gives you longevity is your relationships in the industry. If you're not on LinkedIn, and love it or hate it, but you have to have relationships out there. And no matter how introverted you are, work with people. Try to at least once a month, go out, go to a lunch, go somewhere. Hang on to those relationships and think about who you haven't reached out to in a long time. Don't call because you need something. Call to keep those relationships alive. I put a post on LinkedIn couple of paragraphs long about what happened. Every single job nibble I got came off that big, long post on LinkedIn. I went on Microsoft.com and applied as a VCDX to go want to go work on in their networking and security stuff. I couldn't get through the AHR filter. NVIDIA, like all the big companies, don't even bother applying on websites anymore. It's garbage. Um, you're not going to get, it doesn't matter how well certified or how experienced you are, you're not going to get through it. It's going to be people that will help you get your next role. So don't don't feel beat up by by the situation. Just reach out and talk to folks. Take some time. Take a deep breath. They're just companies, <laughs> you know. Uh, they're going to come. They're going to go. I thought I was going to retire at VMware, right? But fact is, the, the days of you know getting the gold watch are over. So stay in touch with folks is is the biggest thing. I love the advice to not just call people when you need something, but to call people to to stay in touch and and to give, right? Like it's, you know, what can you do to give to your network when you're in a position to to offer advice or offer a recommendation or to refer somebody, you're putting positivity out there and that's yes. Those stories get told about you, right? People who are are worth being around and people you enjoy hanging out with. I think, you know, exactly the way you said is like, man, wouldn't it be great to have that person around? with their positive attitude and how smart they are, they can probably learn to do whatever it is that they, you know, we need them to do. So it's, it's never that simple, but you know, if you can make it a little bit more simple and a little bit more in that direction, it's, it's a positive thing to do. And it's just, you know, a good thing to do in general. So. Cause you don't want the next check-in to be, Hey, I need your help with X. (laughs) (laughs) I, I make a point of two or three times a week, just open LinkedIn, go through there and just, just scroll. You don't have to like doom scroll, but just go through there and see what's happening. And if you see somebody who got laid off, call them. The hardest thing about a layoff is is not getting the new job. It's going to happen. It's how psychologically torn up we get by it. You get really beat up. I've lost some friends over the last, since COVID and all that. Our industry's had a hard time. A lot of people have had some psychologically tough times in the last you know patch. Just reach out and call them. Um, help them get over that stuff. You know, there's people that I wish I could repair a relationship and it's not that anything happened, just they disappeared. What happened to them? I don't know. But they're in a, you know, they're in a bad spot. So try to reach out for those people and help them, especially if you hear they got laid off. Remind them how smart they are. I, you know, with the Broadcom thing, a lot of folks who reported to me or interviewed with me or I just, you know, as a manager I'd worked with, you know, they're calling and I can tell they've lost their self-confidence. And so a, a lot of those phone calls have been about, come on, man, you're, you're a unicorn. Anybody would kill to have you work for them. And I, th- I think a lot of people just need to hear that, that, you know, they are good because it, especially if you're in pre-sales, you have to have a, a level of, um, of confidence, right? To go out there and, and talk like we do. 
And most of us are, I am not a natural extrovert. This is all learned behavior. This is all, I'm faking it. Right now, I'm even, I'm faking it. I am, <laughs> you can ask my wife, I can literally go sit in my room and not talk for three days and I'll just read books. Actually, the guy I'm working with, he had a, a great way of putting it. You're either one of those people that get energy from talking with people or you lose it. I'm one of the people that loses energy from talking to folks. So the most precious thing I have to give people is my time and energy. So reach out to folks who need it and, and give it to them. For sure. It's not necessarily something that you get a dividend from, right? It's not like you, you invest in specific people and then those are the people that, that help you when you're in need. Like if you, if you have that attitude, then it, it probably is, is not going to work. It's, it's interesting. It's one of those uh, things is like the more you give, the more there is, right? The more positivity you put out there, the more there is. And, and that's how there's a dividend. Yeah. And like we started with, you know, there are herds of people that, that stay together and move from company to company. I'm not a joiner. I never have. <laughs> so what, what I've learned in my career is it, since it's, you know, hard for me, you know, to join a group like that, the best thing I can do is just put out good karma, which is, I, I think, the best way to do it. Every good thing that's happened to me in my career came from just putting out good karma. Probably the, be the smartest thing I ever did was take over a VMware user group. That did more to help my career, my financial prospects, all that. It was exhausting sometimes, and it is running a, an org like that is like a full-time job. But man, did I learn a lot. And I met a lot of great people that I, I bump into every day still. I'm in here in Dallas, Fort Worth, and I'll go to a meeting and walk in and, oh, I recognize you, <laughs> right? That happens, you know, to this day. So just keep putting out good karma and good things will come back to you. I like your idea of every so often opening up LinkedIn and checking to see what happens. Sort of like we should schedule that time, plan to use it, almost like a there's this concept of energy budget for yourself. Make sure and put something in your energy budget to send some of that someone else's way. Brad, I think you've inspired me to um, to maybe do that in a in a more organized way. And I know that in LinkedIn you can do an export of your connections, and there's also a part of that connection where it's like the date that you're actually connected. So there's got to be something there where you like kind of have like a randomization with the weight towards um, the longest connections and, and maybe the people that you've uh, interacted with least frequently. There's something there. I'm sure somebody's uh, somebody thought of that or, or I'll ask ChatGPT to, to figure it out for me. Well, you should write it in NeoVim and run it on a Red Hat server to call the LinkedIn APIs. <laughs> <laughs> maybe in Kubernetes. <laughs> If you can't come up with a way to do that more programmatically, you know, if you're in the VMware ecosystem, yeah, I'll be nice to each other, help each other. I think y'all all need it. My wife asked me at one point, and, and I think this is applicable no matter where you work, no matter what's happening. She said, okay, so if you lost your job, who's your first call going to be? Who's the person that you will call first if that happens? And I'm like, I don't think I know that answer. I still don't. He can call me. I still don't think I know that. <laughs> John's shaking his head like. John's <laughs> like, what the heck? What the heck? I, I, had, I had a list of like several that just automatically come to my, don't worry, John, you were on the top of the list. 
Okay, yeah, top ten, top ten. Yeah, is, yeah. If you're if you're saying that you 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 didn't know who to prioritize in your top ten, then of then that's a different story. No, it was like I had several that were floating around in my head. I just didn't know which one that I would pick first. Anyway, it's sure, a sure, sure. it's a good thought exercise for for anybody as we're talking about the illusion of stability, regardless of your company, and and maybe a good way to keep a measure on that is by staying close to the money and paying attention to how well is your company doing from a fiscal perspective. And segments matter too. Like everybody I've ever known who went to go work in glo- on global accounts, like where you just have one big account, I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, our ego gets in the way a lot. Do, do you know the the best segment to make money and have stability is working commercial? Go work with smaller companies because you spread your risk all out and and people turn up their nose and they want to go work enterprise or they just want to work on Fortune 500 companies. That's the other big thing when it comes to to jobs and roles and all that is our egos get in the way. Oh yeah, there's this perception of a of a caste system like you're not you can't be as talented if you don't work with XYZ a, a fang company or one of the quote big boys, big girls. But there are talented people in so many different areas regardless of how big of a company they're working with, consulting for, all that experience. that I mean, they were hired for a reason, and they're talented people everywhere. I just don't think that that caste system is a, is a fair thing. But you, you see that perception. I'm I, with you. I've talked to people who had that, oh, it's, it's some kind of, I don't know, rite of passage or major promotion if you get to go and work with one big company that's huge. Yeah. I don't I don't buy it. It's one big concentration of risk, that's for sure. That and the and the money thing. I talk about this at VBugs and and different stuff all the time. The only people who don't want you talking about how much you make is leadership. We have this weird cultural thing in the US where we don't want to talk about how much we make. It's stupid. It's just stupid. When I was at that startup, I was shocked at how little some of the pre-sales folks made because none of them talked to each other. And so there was people making under 100 and some making over 200, but none of them spoke to each other, so they didn't know. When you're talking to friends, talk about how much you're making. Talk about how much you make. Find out what other people are doing and, and talk about that. It is, a, I think it's a Protestant work ethic thing, something like that, that we have in, in this country where we don't want to talk about how much we make, but it is against the law for a manager to tell you not to discuss how much you make. I'll go look up the National Labor, Labor Relations Board Act of 1920. It was strengthened under the Obama administration in 08, I believe. But nobody is allowed to tell you not to discuss how much you make. So before you go work somewhere, you should be able to walk into that conversation and know what to ask for. Yeah, so strongly agree with that. And there's a lot of new laws out there about requiring companies to post salaries, like uh, salary bands, for example. Hey, this job is going to uh, earn somewhere in this band, depending on the person. So you have like a pretty good idea, you know, of like the low end and the high end. And uh, some states have made it illegal to ask you, you know, what you've made in the past, because it's it's a bias. It's an anchor point. Oh, totally. And just remember, good managers want to pay you what you're worth. Usually they're being shackled by HR, who has some kind of MBO around saving money. 
Usually the manager, though, want to pay you what they're worth because they don't want to have to go through the trouble of getting you a raise. The As a manager, one of the hardest situations I ever had would be someone who is making way less than everybody else on the team. That is a giant pain. You have to work really hard to get them caught up to everyone else. And whether they're talking to everybody else or not, just realize that generally your direct manager wants to pay you more. If they don't, he's the problem. He's the problem. And in fact, a good manager will bring it up and, and talk about what you can do to navigate the hoops, right? To, to do what you need to do to get those, the pay grade increase. And just don't forget that there's pay bands. Uh, a good manager does not want to hire you at the top of a pay band because he's got no way to give you a raise. So they always want to have you 10% below the top of your pay band. So maybe you need to ask for lower pay and a higher grade or a higher pay band. Those are all things to think about that we don't talk about enough. At least in my position, I can certainly confirm that there is no benefit to me personally to pay somebody less. Like they don't go, oh, you've saved the company, you know, $5,000 and here's a bonus. I mean, if I found that, found that out, I would be like, well, this is a company I don't want to like, I don't want to work for them. Right. It's like you're, yeah. you're incentivizing people to like, you know, hold, hold down the, the people that, that work for them instead of, uh, um, hold them up. Right. You want to incentivize the opposite. You want everybody to be an outstanding performer and making a ton of money. Like that's, that's the ideal. And guys, this has been such a, a, a great uh, conversation. Just really appreciate Brad, you're coming on and, and talking to us about it. Any words as we kind of wrap up here? I, you know, if I was going to leave with anything, especially around leadership and, and leaving leadership, we all feel like there's a ladder that we got to climb this ladder to get promoted, to advance our career. You don't. You do not have to stop being an individual contributor to advance your career. Keep, you can keep asking for money. Like I worked very hard to get staff engineer. When I became a staff engineer, that was the same as a senior manager. There are ways to get promoted and to, and to stay you know, in your technical role and not become a leader. You don't have to do it. Not everybody is comfortable doing leadership. And even if you do do leadership, to, it is a skill of its own. I was very lucky to get sent to places like the Notre Dame School of Engineering Leadership to learn about leadership. It is definitely a skill and it's not for everybody. And it is political, <laughs> whether you like it or not. So don't feel like you got to climb the ladder because no matter how high you go up the ladder, there's more ladder. Even CEOs ultimately have a boss, right? The shareholders. So don't feel like you have to do that. If you're comfortable as an individual contributor, absolutely stay there. And if you become a manager, it's, it's not a big deal to go back to being an individual contributor. If anything, I feel like the, my game as a pre-sales engineer, I, I have drastically increased in skill because I understand the meta of what's going on around me in my organization. I understand the stress that my boss has. And you know, so I have a team lead, great guy that I've, I've known for a million years. You know, I've had his role before. So, you know, I understand what he's going through and what he's got to keep track of. That makes me better at my job. If I make their life easier, they make my life easier when we all have each other's back. So don't, don't be afraid to go back down to individual contributor. You know, maybe there'll come a day where I do manager again, but we'll see. You say down in air quotes, right? It's Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like you said, parallel tracks. So Exactly. exactly. Just remember, it's, le it's certainly less stressful. I'm having less stress right now and I'm just having fun learning. So Brad, thanks so much for, for coming back and joining us. And we really appreciate your time. We'll, we'll 
look forward to having you back and and chatting some more. Yeah, anytime. And and Nick, we need to go have some steak. Yeah, we do. We definitely do. (laughs) Appreciate your time, Brad, as always, and sharing your words of wisdom. All right. Y'all have a good one. If you just listened to that and you're looking for more guidance as relates to layoffs, whether it's for you or someone you know, let me point you to episode 237 with guest Leanne Elliott on the psychological transition of layoffs. I would call that our ultimate layoff episode jumping off point because it has links to just about every conversation we've had with a guest who went through a layoff in the show notes for that episode. We had a really good discussion in this interview with Brad about spreading our risk across multiple areas. He talked about spreading it across multiple customers from the pre-sales lens and staying close to the money. Well, we could look at that through the IT operations lens. So let's say that you work in IT operations for a specific business unit. Very similar to what Russell Swinney suggested in episode 253, about the role of the business unit information security officer, that's a chief information security officer tied to a business unit. If you work in technology operations for a business unit, that would mean that your salary is paid by the operating budget for that specific business unit because your impact from a technology perspective and the things you care about Don't go past that business unit. That's your scope and focus. So that's the scope and focus of the revenue, profit, costs, and risk you can impact as a technologist. If the business unit where you're working is not doing well from a financial perspective, if it's not making money, that could put you at risk from a job perspective. Now, it may be that some would say, well, What if you worked for a central technology team that serviced many business units or more than one business unit? That's a little bit better to spread your risk because you can impact more than one business unit, and that's a good thing. Some might also say, well, then maybe you're you're farther away from the money. But I would argue that in either situation, you could look at each project individually and decide, okay, does this project help one or more business units bring in more top-line revenue? Does it give them the potential to bring in more customers or reach new markets with their product? Does it decrease the cost, decrease the operating expense for the business unit as a whole? Whether that's a capital expense, an operating expense, maybe it's maybe you're saving time to get something out the door and you can quantify the cost there. Maybe it decreases risks like preventing a hack or some sort of potential breach to your organization because you increased security. Those are all things that could impact the bottom line. If we take the flip side of that, take a hiring manager, for example, they're going to take a risk when they hire someone, regardless of what team we're talking about. And maybe you have a candidate 
that has experience in the exact technologies needed to do the job, but they don't have the experience at the scale you need it. That could be a risk for the hiring manager. Now, maybe it's not a risk for the hiring manager if everybody else on the team has the experience at scale that you need, and those people can mentor and help this person onboard. The fact that this person knows the technology is a great thing. They just need to learn the principles of scale and a little bit more about the operating environment that they're working in. Okay, cool. But if we're talking about a small team that doesn't have other people to help out with that, maybe it's just the manager and one other person, and you have to operate something at a large scale, perhaps that is a big risk to hire someone who's not done it at that specific scale. So different ways to look at that one, depending on the conditions we're talking about. And I think we can take this idea of risk and apply it to our certification selections. Brad did a great job sharing his analysis of the market, where it's going, some of the conditions present in our industry today as of the time of this recording, and that helped him determine what to choose. It was not only what he liked, but also what he thought was going to be relevant and important for years to come. I think that is a good way to de-risk your choice because you want it to pay off in the skills you gain and the applicability of those skills. Maybe other ways to de-risk your choice would be to look at job descriptions for the types of roles that you want. Maybe in your area compared to outside of your area or if this is something that can be done remotely. Does the job description change at all or the desired requirements that companies want? And talk to industry peers. You know, when you're reaching out to your peers more frequently, those connections that Brad mentions, we should be seeking to talk to people we haven't followed up with in a while. What are they studying? What are they learning? What are they getting certified on? Not just the what, but why are they doing it? What is the reason behind them wanting to do it? Is it because they see a large need in the market, in the job market for those types of skills right now? or that they think there will be in the next couple of years because of different conditions? That's another good context point to think about. I hope you'll take more time and be more intentional about making connections with people you haven't talked to in a while. I know that one certainly made me think, and I want to do a better job there. Hope you enjoyed this discussion, and we'll see you next time. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at Be Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios.